We are jumping into our series in the Gospel of John, and what we're going to do, we're going to spend uh, the next 30 weeks actually looking at the first half of John's Gospel. It's just so deep and so rich. There's so much uh, in there. We're going to spend a whole bunch of weeks looking at the first uh, several chapters. Uh, This is going to be your guide. That's why we put it together. Um, So do grab one of these if you didn't. There are a whole bunch uh, in the back. Uh, But basically the next 10 weeks, right up until uh, the week before Christmas, we're going to just look in depth at the first three chapters of John's gospel. And if that sounds crazy to you that Christmas is in 10 weeks, like, wow, like some of you wackos have your lights up already, probably like it's coming fast. Uh, But the next 10 weeks, first three chapters of John, it's going to be awesome. There's, man, there's so much that we need to look at in this. And really the reason that we put these together uh, is so that we can use these questions, follow along, uh, use them for your own uh, reflection, but also in discussion groups and community groups. If you're not in a community group, I would encourage you to get in one. Uh, but really the point is uh, that we would use these uh, and use the community that we have, the church family that we have, uh, to go deeper and apply the truth of God's word uh, to our lives and actually let it filter down into everything that we do. And that's, that's really the point, and that's really the point of John's gospel Uh, He's going to tell us, he gives us this mission statement, this purpose statement uh, toward the end of the gospel. And he tells us, the reason I wrote all these things to you is so that you would believe that Jesus is the son of God, the Christ, and that by believing you would have life in his name, right? And that's really what we want, life. We want all of us. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we do what we do every Sunday and during the week. All the things that we do, really, it comes down to believing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And that by believing, we would have life in his name. That the things that Jesus taught, the life that he lived, what he did on the cross and the resurrection, that actually filters down into everything that we do day to day. Um, And that's really what we want over the next number of weeks is for this to live really practically uh, in our lives. For it to not just be something that's uh, a bunch of information and a bunch of head knowledge that we take in, but something that actually we open our heart to who Jesus is and what he accomplished for us. And that changes who we are as a person that changes how we see ourselves and the world and God and our purpose and meaning and how we live uh, every single day. Uh, That's really the point. And so if you've read uh, the Bible much at all, or if you've read the Gospels, if you're familiar with them at all, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all four uh, are accounts of the life and the work and the teachings and the miracles of Jesus. Um, But if you've read the Gospels and if you've read John at all, what you will realize as we jump in Uh, is that John actually kind of stands alone in his own little category, uh, a little bit different, actually quite different from the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And there are some specific reasons for that, but basically what it comes down to is the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the synoptic gospels because basically they're storytellers. And so their gospels, they're called the synoptics because the point of them is to give a little synopsis, a little short narrative of the life of Jesus. So what they do is basically they let the camera roll Okay, we read, we see, we hear the words of Jesus, we see what he does, and we basically watch and we make inferences, we, we learn about Jesus, we apply some things to our lives, but basically we have to do the work of figuring out what's going on. John, on the other hand, he has a different style, a different approach. What he's going to do is he, uh, you'll see that he actually includes a lot of different stories that the other gospel writers don't include, uh, and he leaves out a lot of the things that they uh, actually include in theirs. And John, he's one of the 12 uh, disciples that follows Jesus, that walks with him, that lives with him. So what we're getting is a personal eyewitness account of this guy who did life with Jesus, witnessed all of his miracles, his death, his resurrection, all of those things. And what John does 
is he picks events and stories and teachings and dialogues and conversations from his time with Jesus that he thinks are really important for us to see. And instead of just letting the camera roll and letting us watch and observe and listen, he's going to stop along the way and, and actually take a step back, take a step out of the scene and go, guys, this is why Jesus said this. This is what he meant. And he's going to unpack the, the, the deeper, the spiritual meaning, the different layers of the different things that Jesus did throughout. So he's going to stop and go, hey, this is what Jesus meant when he said this. Like, for example, in chapter 2, when Jesus kind of storms the temple and he's flipping tables over and makes a whip and does all that. And then he says, you know, you can destroy this temple, but I'll raise it up in three days. John's going to hit pause, take a step back and explain this is what Jesus meant by that. And so really a, a, the only way I can really think of to, to illustrate this is if you think about the difference between the live action, think about football, if some of us are watching football today, watching the game live, that's the synoptic gospels. We just watch the game unfold, boom, we see what happens, and that's it. John is the in-depth play-by-play. Okay, so John's going to stop along the way as a player, as someone who did life with Jesus and was along for the journey. He's going to stop along the way like a, you know, NFL player or something, giving us play-by-play. It's like watching game film afterward. John's going to hit pause and go, hey, this is what's happening. And it's going to be super deep, super rich. We're going to get so much uh, rich, deep theology from John. And he's going to just use all these beautiful images and symbols and uh, things that he's going to give us these little Easter eggs, these little nuggets right from chapter one that he's going to, throughout the rest of the gospel, 21 chapters, he's going to unfold and unpack the meaning of these things. He's going to give us a lot of those right here on day one in chapter one. And so uh, really the point of it, like I mentioned at the start, John gives us this, this purpose statement. Why does he choose to write the things that he does and include the things that he does in his gospel? He has a really intentional uh, meaning to it. And if we've got that scripture up there, John 20, verse 30 to 31, this is why John includes the things that he does. This is why he writes what he does. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That's why John chose to write the things that he he wrote, the things that we're going to see throughout this gospel. It all comes down to, he wants us to see right from the get-go who this Jesus is, this guy that he walked with, that he's going to tell us about for 21 chapters. He wants us to know right from the beginning, I want you to believe through these words, through these things that Jesus did. I want you to believe that he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, and to have life in his name. John wants us to experience the life that only Jesus can offer. He wants us to open up our hearts and actually be changed by this gospel. He wants to, us to actually have our eyes open to see who this Jesus was, not just as a bunch of information and head knowledge, but to actually be transformed from the inside out by who Jesus was. And so he's going to unpack a ton of deep things, awesome things, right from the get-go. Uh, it's going to seem, right from the beginning here, a little bit uh, theological, because John's going to give us, right from the beginning of chapter 1, he's going to give us some pretty in-depth theology, um, that throughout the, the history of the church, um, the church fathers looked to John for a lot of their theology, their Christology, theology of the Holy Spirit, uh, Trinitarian theology. So it's going to feel a little bit theological at the beginning, but John is going to bring it ba- uh, back down and make it just live on a really day-to-day level practically for us. So let's open it up. Let's jump in. John chapter 1, verse 1. How does John start his gospel? 
He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So how does John start in the beginning? In the beginning. Where does that take your mind? Genesis chapter 1, right? Yeah. Very beginning of the Bible. So John opens his gospel the same way that the the Hebrew scriptures, Genesis, first book of the the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, starts with, in the beginning. Exact same words that John uses. And what does it say in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? In the beginning, God. Right? And so John is mirroring, mirroring that creation story, the words of Genesis 1, by saying, in the beginning was the word. And so already, right off the bat, he's telling us something about Jesus, right? Genesis says, in the beginning, God. John says, in the beginning was the word. So he's already telling us that this word that he's going to go on to describe for us is God. And we're going to learn, uh, if you scroll a little bit down, uh, chapter, uh, sorry, verse 17 and 18 of chapter 1, John's going to tell us, he's going to name this word. He's going to tell us who the word is and say, this word is Jesus. So when John talks about the word, he's talking about Jesus. And so right from the beginning, John is telling us something very important uh, about Trinitarian theology, something that we have always believed historically as a church, that God is eternally from the beginning, one God in three persons, right? So he's eternally one God, eternally distinct. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. John's telling us this right from the start because he wants to tell us, look what he says, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. And the word was God. So in the beginning, there's God, Genesis 1.1, creating the world. John is telling us that Jesus was right there with God. And this might seem obvious to us, but I think sometimes we can think about, you know, from the other gospels and the Christmas story that we all know, right? Jesus born a baby, a human baby, in the mess of the manger with the animals. And we got the magi and the, you know, the wise men and the stars in the sky. And we all know that Christmas story. And so it can be easy sometimes to forget and, and start, start to think that Jesus actually came into existence at some point in history, that he was created, right? Because he was born a human baby. But what John wants us to be very clear about is that Jesus did not at any point come into being. He always was in the beginning with God. There was Jesus. When God was speaking all of creation into existence, there was Jesus right there, the word was with God. And not only was he with God, the word was God, right? So Jesus is right there with the Father, but he's also God. And so, you know, grammatically, that sentence makes sense. Logically, we don't even have a category in our brain for that. How can you be with someone and also be someone, right? And that's that rich, deep theological waters that Christianity offers, that mind-bending, mind-stretching kind of thing. But that's what we believe, is that Christ Jesus, the Son of God, eternally with God, eternally God. Eternally distinct, but eternally one. And then verse 3 is going to go on to tell us that all things were made through him, through the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. Right? So again, we can think of God the Father as the creator, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. 
But John's telling us that Jesus was right there with him. And this Jesus that John's going to go on and tell us about for 21 chapters, he actually is not just a man, not just a good teacher, not just a prophet, not just an explainer, not just someone who you know, gave us a good moral framework to live our lives by. He is actually the creative, eternal power of God through which God created the entire cosmos. So when God was there, Genesis 1, 1, and he is speaking into existence. We see this refrain 10 times throughout Genesis 1. God said, God said, God said, let there be light. God said, let there be waters and let them separate. God said, let there be creatures in the waters. Let there be, uh, let the land sprout vegetation up. God said, God said, God said, and then it happens. And what John wants us to know is that eternally before creation, Jesus was there, but that God actually, through the power of Jesus, the creative power of God, spoke creation into existence. Everything that was made was made through Jesus. And so what is John saying? Why why does he choose to describe Jesus and and call Jesus uh, the word? That's a really interesting thing, the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And what John is doing, he's actually doing something super cool here and something I think we need to learn from. John is taking a concept that already exists in Jewish thought and also in, in pagan Greek thought. So this concept of the word already existed for Jewish people, the religious people, and also uh, for the culturally uh, Greek people. And so what John is doing is he's doing a beautiful job of contextualizing the message of God, the truth of God. He wants to make it live for the Jewish religious people and also for the Greek people. And so he's going to take this idea that already exists in their framework. He's going to say to both the Jewish and the Greek people, hey, this is how you think about the world. This is how you think about God, how you think about your own life, how you live, what your reason and meaning and purpose for existence is, what's governing the entire universe. You have these things that you're chasing after, these answers, the way, this framework by which you understand the world. And he doesn't say, oh, you got it wrong. Those things are stupid. Why do you think that way? He says, it's good that you're thinking about these things, asking these big questions of existence, of meaning, of the cosmos. It's good that you're asking these questions, but let me tell you where those questions find their fulfillment and their answer. And it's in Jesus. And I think we sometimes, maybe as a big C church, maybe don't do the best job of communicating for people who uh, did not grow up in the church. We don't do the best job of communicating to them the truth of God, right? In the language that we use, uh, if you didn't grow up in the church, if you didn't grow up in a Christian family or, you know, Bible studies and doing all the church stuff, the Christian stuff, then you understand, you've experienced how ostracizing it can feel, right? If you show up to a Christian thing, show up on a Sunday worship service, whatever, and the language that's used uh, and just the whole vibe, the whole persona is not uh, something that you're even able to understand and grasp. That's actually not the way God operates. God wants to make his truth accessible to the religious to the irreligious, to the people who have never walked into synagogue, the Greeks, to the people who have never walked into a church before, who didn't grow up in the church. So John does this beautiful thing where he takes this concept of the word and he's going to say it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So what did it mean uh, for Jewish people? This meaning that's already baked in uh, to their worldview. Well, first of all, we saw that uh, you know, as John mirrors the creation story, Genesis 1.1, that's how the, Jew- the Jewish people would have understood uh, the whole creation of the cosmos. That was a big part of their identity and their narrative and their story was God, the one God, created the entire world and us and everything in it. And by mirroring that, John is showing us the importance of 
uh, what Jesus came to do in terms of not just creation, but recreation, new creation. So the Jewish people would have understood God created the world, but then there was the fall. We fell into sin. We made a mess of things. And what John, first of all, is telling them is that Jesus, this one that I'm telling you about, came to bring the new creation, to usher in the beginning of the kingdom, that there can be a redemption from the fall. The creation was good. We messed it up. Jesus brings in new creation. But a big thing for the Jewish people, the Jewish understanding of the world and of the word, was that words were never just words. They were never just phrases and things that were spoken. Their understanding of words was that they had power. Words are effective. They're active. They actually do things. A word was never just a sound. It had power to it. Uh, There's one Old Testament uh, scholar who says this. His name is John Patterson. He says, The spoken word to the Hebrew was fearfully alive. It was a unit of energy charged with power. It flies like a bullet to its billet. So that's how the Jewish people understood the word. Words had power, even human words. So somebody who was gifted with the gift of, of speaking, of using words, it was never just about what they were saying. Their words would actually affect the heart and do something in you. They would move you, right? And so that was everything from their, their poets to their musicians, to their artists, to their uh, leaders, when they would speak, it would cause an action. It would cause something to move, right? And we, we experience this too. We know what this is like, right? When there's a powerful uh, preacher or a leader or somebody who gets up and says things, but the words aren't, it's not just about the words that they're speaking. Those words go out and they hit us and they resonate something in our heart. They do something to us. They actually move us in the depths of our being, right? To action, right? And so it was said of Winston Churchill, right, during World War II, that when he would get on the radio and he would start speaking to the people, his words would move the British forces. His words would move the allies. The things that he would say, it wasn't even about his words. It was about the power with which he spoke. They would cause action. They would cause the forces to rise up and move and be inspired. It was said about uh, in the uh, Protestant Reformation about the Scottish preacher, John Knox. It was said that his voice inspired more courage in the hearts of men than 10,000 trumpets. There's power in the words, right? And I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I think we still experience this today. Don't, don't make fun of me. But for me, I experienced this at, uh, a few years back at a Coldplay concert. It just Coldplay, great band. I don't care what you say. But I was at this show, and uh, I'm there with my buddy. And, you know, it's, it's too... You know, adult grown men at a Coldplay show. Nothing weird about that. Um, but there's this song that Chris Martin has wrote. It's called Fix You. Right? Do you know the song? Beautiful song? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but it's about loss and it's about brokenness. And we're at this concert, me and my buddy. And, uh, you know, I had just experienced the loss of, of a friend, someone who had passed away. He had just gone through a rough breakup or something in his life, whatever, a time of loss and pain or whatever. And, you know, it's the encore. They've played the whole show whole stadium is just standing up on their feet and it's just dark and then they come out for the encore and it's fix you and it just starts all soft and then it builds and it builds and there's Chris Martin backstage and it's just one single light bulb just starts to light up and then all these thousands of light bulbs throughout the stadium and it just lights up and then the song builds and it builds and it builds to this big majestic 
chorus and he's singing, you know, I will try and fix you. Tears stream down your face when you lose something you cannot replace. And then I'm just, me and my buddy are standing there and I'm like looking around and like I just start bawling, crying my eyes out. And I'm like, I can't even, like I look over and my friend is just done, just bowling his eyes out and we just two grown men just put our arms around each other and we're just swaying and crying our eyes out at a Coldplay concert it's so weird right <laughs> like who does that uh, and then we kind of snapped out of it song ends and the lights come on hit the gym hey <clears throat> she goes, yeah go grab a beer <clears throat> but that's the power of words right it wasn't the words it was it was the the, the power behind them that just struck us in the heart and resonated and moved us. And that was the Hebrew understanding of the word. It did something. It didn't just say something, it did something. The words of human beings, but even more so in their understanding, the words of God. The word was effective. When God spoke, things happened. Through his word, God speaks his will into being. That's what we saw. That's what John's drawing our attention to in the creation story, right? God said, God said, God said. All throughout, you know, the Old Testament, we see this. God's word goes out and it does things. Isaiah 55, 11 says, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God's word goes out and it accomplishes God's will. And that's actually, that's why when we hear preaching or when we hear, even when we just sit down on our own and read, read God's words that he's spoken to us, inspired by the Holy Spirit, when we do Bible study, when we listen to a talk that's from the Bible, a truth, whatever, it's not just hitting here, it hits here, right? It moves us to an encounter with God where God actually meets us here. God actually does something, right? That's encountering Jesus. It's Karl Barth, a theologian. He called this meeting the word behind the word, right? We don't just read scripture and talk about scripture and hear from scripture for the sake of hearing words. We want to meet the word behind the word, which John says is Jesus. And so if you've ever been there just studying the Bible or sitting in a in a sermon or whatever, and God starts to do something in your heart, in your mind, starts to move you, starts to affect your, your affections, your heart, and does something, calls you to, to conviction, calls you to repentance. It gives you a word that you need to say something, you need to do something, you need to change how you're living, whatever it might be. That's God moving through his word. His word is effective. It has power where we actually encounter him through it. And I've, I've seen this over and over again. I've uh, doing work with uh, a soccer team, just some chaplaincy work. I've seen this with athletes, guys who are hardened in their heart. They want nothing to do with Jesus, nothing to do with Jesus. But then eventually over time, they start, you know, you give them a Bible and they start looking at this and you don't even, sometimes you don't even have to do anything. You don't have to preach to them. You don't have to, whatever, that, you don't need it. The power of God's word. I've seen that. A good buddy of mine that I, just had the, the privilege of being part of his wedding a few weeks ago. Guy from the soccer team that I played with at, uh, at Trinity just n- wanted nothing to do with God, nothing to do with Jesus. But then starts reading this and God meets him there and he starts to meet the word behind the word. And he starts getting more and more interested and he's reading the gospels and he's reading James and we walk through these books of the Bible together and he's, it just start, God starts to move in his heart 
That's what happens. That's the power of the word because the word is Jesus. He's the word who took on flesh and came to us. That's what John's going to tell us uh, in verse 14 of chapter 1. And the word came. Jesus took on flesh. The word of God who was there from the beginning. He took on flesh and came to us. Why? To reveal what God is like. Right? Think about words. Think, we're thinking about the power of words. If you want to know somebody, like really know them, know what they're about, know what they think, know what's in their heart, know who they are. What do you need? You need to listen to their words, right? You need to listen to what they say. If you just see somebody off in the distance, but you've never spoken to them, you've never heard from them, you can make a lot of inferences, a lot of assumptions about who they are, but you wouldn't say that you actually know that person, right? Like you, if you're married, you didn't know your spouse until you talked to them, right? You don't know what they want. You don't know what they're like in their heart, unless you speak to them, you hear what they say. That's what God is saying to us. He's saying, you want to know what I'm like? You want to know what my heart is for you? My desires are for you? My will for you and your life? Look at Jesus. That's what John's saying. You want a window into the heart of God, the unchanging love and character of God throughout the ages? He gave us a window to peer into his heart. And it was the word who took on flesh. It was Jesus. And John's saying to these Jewish people who understand the world this way and the word this way, he's saying, you know how you connect with God now? It's no longer through ritual cleansing. It's no longer through temple worship. It's no longer through animal sacrifice. It's through knowing the word. It's through knowing Jesus. That's how you're going to connect with God now. You want to know what God is like and be more like him? It's through Jesus. And I don't know if you've experienced this. I've just heard so many times from people, you know, I can, yeah, I think I believe in God. I think I can get on board with God. I'm just not crazy about Jesus. And what John is saying here is, how do you know what God looks like apart from Jesus? You want to know what God is like? Look at him. There's no other way to know who God is and what his heart is like. Because what's the alternative We don't want Jesus, but we say we want to believe in God or some concept of God. But what are we going to do if we don't have a framework? If we don't look to Jesus, we're going to create God in our own image, right? And because we are, you know, what Martin Luther said, we're we're homo incurvatus. That's our, our curse as human beings. We are mankind turned in on ourselves, right? We are naturally prideful and narcissistic. What we're going to do is we're going to create God in our own image. And that is going to fail every single time. Because we create God in our own image, and then when things don't go right, things don't go in our life the way that we want them to go, it all comes crumbling down, right? God failed me. We want to get an accurate picture of who God is? Look to Jesus. He came to us. He opened a window in time for us to see the heart of God. That's what John is saying to these Jewish people. And now, how does he speak into the the understanding of, Uh, that the Greeks had of the word. So they also had this concept for hundreds of years. Uh, It started with a philosopher in around 560 BC. His name was Heraclitus. And so he came up with this concept of the word, which was basically his idea of, hey, I look at the world and I see that, you know, it it should be chaos, you know, but there seems to be some kind of governing force, some kind of source of reason, some kind of power out there. I don't know what it is, but there's some kind of power. It's some kind of impersonal force that seems to be providing reason, providing logic, allowing human beings to think and to reason and to distinguish between right and wrong. There's got to be a reason and an order and a logic. So we get that word logos. This is what the Greeks called word, logos. 
There must be some kind of logic to how the universe goes. Right? So that was the Greek understanding that John is speaking into. And so there was some kind of power out there that made sense of the world. And I love what, what God does through John. He doesn't just, you know, come into the context of people who have a, maybe a skewed understanding of the world and of God and of themselves and make them feel stupid, right? He goes, the things that you're searching for, they're good things. Let me tell you where they find fulfillment, right? And so this, this reason of the universe, I think a lot of us, to me, I think this is the most prevalent worldview that I see in talking to people is, who aren't, aren't Christians is a lot of people out there have this understanding of the world that there must be some kind of logic to it. There must be some kind of reason. And it, it comes out in phrases like, you know, I believe that the universe has a plan, right? Or uh, maybe I believe like in some kind of God, there's got to be a creator. There's got to be something out there. You know, life's not meaningless, but I don't know what it is. You know, I, I call this Ted Mosby theology. So if you've ever watched How I Met Your Mother, the main character, his name's Ted Mosby. He's in his 30s somewhere, but all of his friends are like moving on with life and getting married and having kids and all this stuff. And then he's just stuck in the you know, endless cycle of the dating game and he can't figure his life out and he can't find somebody to settle down and marry. But he just keeps coming back to saying, this hasn't worked out, but I know the universe has a plan. The universe has a plan. It's just this longing, right, that's stitched into us on some level that there has to be some kind of meaning. There has to be some kind of reason out there for why we exist. There has to be some kind of force governing the universe. John says, that's a good thing. That's, that's true. That desire that you have, that thought that you have about why you exist, in a way, it's true. But let me tell you where it finds its fulfillment, right? The thing that you're looking for, for first of all, you're not going to find it. Another popular view today, very common, is that we can find this meaning and this reason for existence by just looking deep enough within ourselves, right? It's like if you, you know, download this meditation app, and do enough, spend enough time meditating and looking within yourself, you will find the answer. You'll find the reason for life. You'll find out why you exist, the reason for the universe. I worked at Lululemon for a while, so I know this theology very well. It's like you get enough stretchy pants and you go on enough yoga retreats and look within yourself, you'll find enlightenment, right? And John is saying, no, you can't look within yourself. The answer is not deep within myself. Guys, let's be honest. Like, I'm a gong show. I'm a disaster, I'm not going to find the answer within myself. I'm actually the problem, right? And he's saying, you're not going to find the reason for your existence and the reason for meaning in life and all these things. You're not going to find it within yourself, but you're also not going to find it in some vague idea of some kind of life force out there like Star Wars, like it's the force or something, right? Bringing balance to the universe. No. He's saying there is the thing that you're looking for, the reason for your existence, for your life, the meaning, the peace, the joy, the hope that you're searching for, it's not in yourself. It's not in some vague idea. It's actually in a person. The Logos, the Word, who became flesh. It's in Jesus. You're looking for all these things and you're only going to find them. You're only, only going to make sense of your life. Get some kind of sense of meaning and direction and peace and comfort ultimately in Jesus. It doesn't mean you're going to have all the answers to your life. But you know, if you've put your faith in Jesus, if you're following him and trusting him, you know that when you do that, something just clicks, right? Your heart finds this rest, even though you don't have all the answers, because you know, personally, in relationship, you know this God who created the universe and who created you and who has a reason for you being here. 
It's like what uh, St. Augustine said. He said, Lord, you have made us for yourself. And our hearts will not find rest until they find rest in you. So that's why John can say to the Jewish people, to the Greek people, that fulfillment that you're looking for, that logic, that reason, the word that you have this concept of, let me challenge your view of God. Let me encourage you to keep searching, but to tell you that it's only going to find its fulfillment in Jesus, in this Jesus that I'm going to spend 21 chapters telling you about. And that's why John is able to say in verse 4, in him was life. In him was life. So life and light are two big themes that we're going to see come up again and again and again throughout the gospel. John loves these two words, and they're kind of parallel themes. They're going to come up a bunch of times. Uh, And he's going to continue to develop them throughout the gospel. But let's look at life. What is this life that we read about over 50 times in this gospel? Jesus continually comes and offers people life. Right, and so here are just a few other verses. There are so many of them, but John 3.16, one that you probably know well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. John 10.10, Jesus says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. John already told us this in his, his, his purpose statement, right? In chapter 20. I'm telling you these things so that you believe that Jesus is the Christ and what? Have life in his name. So what is this life that Jesus offers that John continually calls us back to experience in Jesus. There are a couple words that John could have used that mean life. There's bios, okay, which just means biological life. It means your heart is beating, your lungs are bringing in oxygen, you're walking around, you're alive, you're literally biologically living. That's not the word that he uses any of these times. He uses another word, which is zoe, which means the divine, deeper, spiritual life possessed by God. That is what Jesus is offering. Zoe, divine, spiritual life that the Trinity has within each other, the love that God the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit share in perfect communion, perfect relationship, perfect love. God is inviting us, Jesus is inviting us into that love relationship to experience that kind of life, the divine life of God. And so what Jesus is saying is that we can, it's very possible that we can be walking around, living, breathing, speaking, biologically alive, but just existing not actually living, not actually living the life that God created us from the beginning to live, the life of meaning and joy and purpose in relationship with God that he created us to experience. And I think sometimes we think about eternal life, this thing that's promised to us over and over again in the gospels, eternal life. What comes to mind when you think of that? I think often it's, it's the length, right? The duration, right? It's eternal. So it'll last forever right? And that is an important part of it. Eternal life is life that will last forever with God. But what John is saying, what Jesus continually is trying to bring us back to is that it's about so much more than just the length. Because think about it, for some people, their experience of life, if they had to experience that forever, that wouldn't be a good thing, right? That, w- that might be torture. People who are not having a good time, people who are in darkness, in pain, in suffering, 
They don't want to experience life as they're currently experiencing it forever, right? So that's, that's not what Jesus is offering. He's offering, yes, life forever, but it's not just the duration. There has to be something Jesus is offering about the quality of life, right? He's offering a life of free of pain, a life of meaning, a life of joy, a life of hope that, yes, it is security in this life and in the next. When we die That is one of the promises of Jesus, that we will live forever with him. But also, while we live the rest of our days, however many days we have left in this life, we will live it with him and experience the life of meaning and hope and joy with the God of the universe in his presence that we can only experience with him. He offers us true life, life of meaning, the life that we are actually created to live and John continually gives this, this parallel between light and life and darkness and death, right? And so it's all throughout the gospel where there's light, people see, they have their eyes opened, they believe and they experience life. But on the other side of that, the flip side, where there's darkness, there is blindness, there's unbelief, and there's death. And the reality with our lives is that we have all wandered into darkness, right? In sin, we have wandered into the way of death. Out of light into darkness. Out of the light that God created us to live and to walk in into darkness. And we experience the results of that, right? The results of our sin. The results of what we do and what people do to us that cause brokenness, that cause death and destruction and pain. And what Jesus is saying is, in him was life and the light was what? The light of men. Jesus is saying, I came. John is telling us, Jesus came as the light of the world, the light of men. And the light was life. The life was the light of men and the the life was the light. Jesus came to provide a way. As one author says, he is, if we are a ship out to sea in the dark, in a storm, in a shipwreck, taking on water, about to go down into death, Jesus is the lighthouse on the shore, shining brightly, showing us the way back to him, showing us the way back to life through belief in him, trust in him, opening our heart to him. He's the light that leads us out of the wreckage and the mess of our lives into true and meaningful, full life. In John 8, and this is going to come up over and over again, this this theme of light, but again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. We read verse 5, the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So Jesus came as a light and John wants to bring to our attention just this theme, right? This, this conflict, this contrast between light and dark that we see everywhere in our lives. It's, I think it's stitched into us. It's stitched into our culture. It's in every story, every legend, every movie, right? This is Harry Potter. This is Lord of the Rings. This is every single one of the 500 superhero movies that are out there now, right? This is everything. Every, every Disney movie carries shadows of this, right? It's this, this conflict between light and darkness. This is stitched into us. And I think John is really trying to actually, actually press on something here and bring something to our mind, bring something to our heart that is going to resonate, that is somewhere stitched into our being that God has put into us right from the beginning, right? John's bringing our attention to the creation narrative, if you remember, what is, what is the first thing that God brings 
right? The world is, it's void, it's dark, it's chaos. And God says, let there be light. Let there be order out of the chaos. Let there be light out of the darkness. And I think what John is trying to get at is that man, life can look really, really dark, right? And I don't know if you guys have felt this in the last, you know, two years. <laughs> I've been feeling this in the last year, maybe the last few months. I don't know if maybe before that. I don't know what life looks like for you right now, but life can look really, really dark. It can look really, really hopeless. It can be really, really painful. And I don't know what you're walking through right now or what you have been walking through, but maybe you're asking right now, like, how did I get here? Why am I here? How did this happen? How could, how could this possibly end well? You know, we look around us, we see what's going on in the world, the chaos, the disorder, the darkness, the confusion, the hopelessness. Maybe you're in the midst of it right now. Um, I just, my wife and I just finished rewatching all of the Lord of the Rings. We just marathoned them. It was awesome. But this is like the clearest picture all through those movies is, is strung this theme of light and dark, right? If you've read the books or seen the movies, um, there's this part in the end of the second one in the Two Towers uh, where Frodo and Sam, these two hobbits, these little guys, are, they have this impossible task of taking the, the ring of power you know, to Mount Doom. They have to destroy this evil ring. And you know, they shouldn't be able to do it. Right? They're these little hobbits from the Shire. They're not warriors. They're not strong, whatever. But they're carrying this, this evil ring and they got to go all the way to this mountain, whatever. And all around them, it's just dark. There's a war being fought. Their friends are captive and they're dying. The hobbits are in captivity and they're just feeling weighed down, feeling wrecked, feeling crushed by the hopelessness of the world around them. And Frodo just, he's the main one with the ring. He just collapses And he says, I can't do this, Sam. And then Sam comes in. Everyone needs a friend like Samwise. Sam comes in. He says, I know. It's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here. But we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo. The ones that really mattered. Full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come, and when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. Those were the stories that stayed with you, that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo, I do understand. I know now. Folks in those stories had lots of chances of turning back, only they didn't. They kept going because they were holding on to something. And so maybe you're feeling this right now. Maybe you're feeling this darkness. Maybe you're feeling like you're in the pit right now. But do you have something to hold on to? John's saying we have the ultimate thing to hold on to. What is that thing? The darkness did not overcome the light. The light shines in the darkness. Up until this point, everything John has said has been phrased in the past tense. This happened, this happened, this happened. The first thing that he puts in the present ongoing tense is the light shines in the darkness. 
And he's saying, this isn't something that happened in the past. This isn't something Jesus accomplished just in the past. It's still happening now in the present. He is still shining in the darkness. He is still the light of men. He is still the one who came to bring you life. And the darkness still right now to this day has not overcome the light. And so the promise of Jesus is not an easier life. It's not a smoother life where nothing bad will happen. He doesn't promise that. He promises eternal life. He promises a life where no matter what is happening, we have something to hold on to. He promises his presence in the midst of whatever you're going on. He doesn't promise that that thing, that circumstance is going to get better immediately. He promises that he is right there with you, holding on to you, holding you up with his strength, with the might of his right arm in the midst of it. He promises that that thing might not end, but that thing will not overcome you. That whatever the darkness is that you are in right now, whatever the circumstance, whatever the situation is, if you are in Jesus, if you are walking with the one who is the light and the life of men, that thing cannot, will not overcome you and destroy you. The promise is that even if we can't see why something is happening, he can. He is the eternal word who was there at the beginning and he's already there at the end. He knows how your situation will end and how it will turn out. And he is not wasting an ounce of your pain. He is not wasting a single tear. He's using it for something, even if we can't understand why. The darkness has not overcome it. How do we know this? Jesus, he came. The light of men was tried illegally. He was falsely accused. He was stripped naked. He was humiliated. He was spat on. He was beat nearly to death. And he was hung on a cross, crucified publicly, in shame, in humiliation, in the ultimate pain. He was killed and he was buried in the ground. He was sealed in the tomb. It looked like darkness had won. It looked like death had won the ultimate victory, but even death could not hold him. That God raised the light to life, that he walked out of the tomb, that even death could not hold him. Even what looks like the ultimate darkness in our lives cannot keep us down. And so if we are in him, that is the promise to us that we will share in that light, in that eternal life. That not even the darkness of death can overcome us because the light has won and the light is still shining. That's our hope. How do we receive this? How do we walk in this? John's going to keep bringing us back to this. Believe. By believing. This purpose statement. Believe. Believe that he is the son of God. He's the Christ. And have life in his name. William Barclay is a theologian. He says this. For John... Belief means the conviction of the mind that Jesus is the son of God. The trust of the heart that everything he says is true and the basing of every action on the unshakable assurance that we must take him at his word. When we do that, we stop existing and begin living. Are you just existing right now or are you actually truly living Here's Jesus throughout the rest of this gospel. He's holding out this, this light, this life to us saying, take it, receive it, walk in this. Let's do that together. Let's be challenged in how we see the world, how we see God, how we see Jesus. Let's let this rattle us to the core. Let's receive this light and this life that is offered to us. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you that you did not leave us on our own, but that you came as the light of life. That you offer life to us continually now, in this moment still. And Lord, I just pray that whatever we're walking through right now, it might look really dark, it might look really painful, it might look like it's never going to end, we might not know what the end is going to be, but Lord, would you comfort us who are in pain right now? And for those who have not received your offer of life, would you move in their heart? For them to open up their hearts and welcome you in, to receive you, to receive the light that you offer. Lord, would you change us through this gospel? Would you change us through your word? Continue to grow us as your people, as a church, that we would be people of light in the world for the glory of your name. Amen.